welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? It's good to see you all this morning. If we've not met before, my name is Bubba. I'm one of the pastors. And today we are launching into our Advent sermon series. Uh, we're calling this series Waiting. And uh, during this, seas- this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be uh, kind of like exploring different stories in Scripture where we look at a particular person and see how they are kind of like a Christ-type figure, someone who points to the coming of Christ and learn from them how we can be uh, patient and waiting and seeking God. And so we're excited for this new series uh, and uh, excited to see what God is going to do through our time together. I do want to, before we jump into things today, I want to take a moment though to just acknowledge um, all the people who put together these beautiful Christmas decorations all over the building. You guys, why don't we give it up to them because the team did such an amazing job. I always love the, the Christmas time when, when the lights are up and it just seems so magical. Right? Anybody like that? Is it just me? Like, it's just like, oh, it looks so be- pretty and all, you know, so beautiful. And uh, it's, it's just like a really special, uh, special uh, time. And so, um, you know, this series, we're, we're talking about waiting, this idea of waiting. And I was, I was thinking about this. And um, I don't know if you realize this, but the human attention span, they say now, is eight seconds long. Right, eight seconds. To put that in context, uh, a goldfish's attention span is nine seconds long. <laughs> right, so you you know something's wrong when you're being outpaced by a goldfish. Uh, but but I mean, I, I was thinking about it, like you know we we tend to, to to want immediate gratification. We don't want to wait. We want things to happen now. I want it now, immediately, right in this moment. And uh, you know, waiting is something that can be very challenging. Right? Do you like to wait? No, of course not, right? Nobody likes to wait. You don't want to wait in grocery store lines or be put on hold on the phone and wait or have to, you know, wait for like, a, a, you know, your, a movie you're wanting to see to come out. You don't want to wait for anything, right? We don't like to wait. Nobody likes to wait. It's, it's frustrating. It's challenging. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Uh, in, 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 waiting is sometimes uh, actually helpful. It, it can actually even be good. There are actually experiences that happen in life where we are kind of forced to wait and the waiting can be formative. I'll give you one example. Um, if you think about like when someone is uh, anticipating having a child, right? You have to wait nine months. You're waiting for the baby to arrive. Uh, and in that time, as you wait, what happens? Uh, you get prepared. Uh, you get perspective. 
you, you, you start to change as you're waiting for this change to happen in your life. Uh, and so waiting can be something that's actually, if you're willing to let it, uh, be something that can be a blessing to you. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at a story of someone who had to, to wait. Uh, th- this person had to wait for years, waiting for God to show up and change his circumstances, waiting for God to uh, help him go from, from a place of brokenness to a place of, 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 of healing. And... Uh, in this story, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see how waiting is able to help you see what God is up to differently. And that's what I'm hoping happens today as we spend some time in the Word of God. And so uh, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump into it. And the story we're going to be looking at today is the story of Joseph. So if you've got a Bible, you can grab it and go to Genesis chapter 50. That's where we'll be, Genesis chapter 50. And uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into it. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you uh, for our time together. We thank you that uh, we can come to you, um, and we can seek you out, that we can fellowship with you, God. And we do, uh, we do anticipate to hear from you today. We know that as we open up your word, you are speaking to us. We know that as we look at stories in scripture, we're not just looking at uh, these random stories, but ultimately, God, we're seeing your story, and we're seeing how you are, uh, you know, working in and through all things to bring about good for those who love you. And we pray and ask God today, help us to uh, to draw near to you, God. I do pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us uh, eyes to see what you are doing, what you are up to, how you are working in our lives as well. I pray, uh, help us to see. Uh, the beauty and the glory of, uh, of Jesus as the Christ. And we do take a moment, Jesus, to acknowledge you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. You lived without sin, died for our sin, rose from the grave. You've ascended into the heavens and reign and rule in glory, and we're grateful for you. We ask Holy Spirit, um, speak to us, minister to us, uh, help our, 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 our minds and our hearts and our lives to not only uh, be honoring to God, but to experience um, the beauty and the blessings of, of God. And so we pray this all, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph, and um, the story of Joseph is one that is pretty complicated. It's a pretty complicated story. It's in the book of Genesis from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, and so it covers, you know, roughly like 13 chapters, but these are very long chapters, and uh, there's a lot going on in this story. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of tell you the story to start out with, just kind of help you understand what's happened. And then as we get into chapter 50 uh, of Genesis, we're going to look at like a pivotal moment in this story, possibly the most pivotal moment in the story. And we're going to center in just on that part of the story. But if you don't understand the broader context of the story of Joseph, then chapter 50, um, it really won't make as much sense as it could. Okay. So let's talk about Joseph for a moment. Joseph grew up in an important family. He's from an important family. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? That's the family of Joseph. 
And in fact, Jacob is Joseph's dad, Isaac, his grandpa, and Abraham, his great-grandpa. And so Joseph is born into this very important family with this very important legacy. It's a big family. There's like 13 children. He's uh, kind of the, 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 the second youngest of the sons. And Jacob, his dad, does something that no dad should do. His dad loves Joseph more than the other brothers, right? That shouldn't happen, but it does. And because of that, there's this tension and animosity between Joseph and his brothers. In fact, his brothers kind of hate him. They hate him. And we're told that when Joseph was like 17, he had a dream. And in this dream, he dreamt that his brothers bowed down to him, that they were, they were going to, you know, serve him. And they bowed down to him. It's one thing to have a dream like that. It's another thing uh, when you're like the little brother to tell your older brothers about that dream. And Joseph uh, did tell his brothers about the dream. And as you can imagine, it didn't go uh, well for him. Uh, they, they, they hated him even more for the dream. And they're like, we're not going to bow down to you. Like, you're crazy. And, and then they actually started to conspire against him. They were, they were trying to think about, like, they were like, we think we should kill him. That's what they were going to do. But instead of killing him, uh, what they ended up doing is they ended up selling him into slavery. And so his brothers betray him. His brothers sell him into slavery, and he is shipped off. These slave traders take him to Egypt. And so he's, he's taken from his home, 17 years old, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. There's a man named Potiphar who ends up purchasing Joseph. Potiphar is a commander in the army of Pharaoh, so he's an important guy. And uh, as Joseph is you know, serving him and his household, as time goes on, uh, the Bible tells us that the Lord God was with Joseph and helped him to prosper in what he did, that he was a very faithful young man, and he ended up getting more and more and more responsibility to the point to where he became kind of the steward over Potiphar's house. He was taking care of all of Potiphar's business and all of his endeavors, and whatever Joseph focused on, whatever he did, it, started, it prospered to the point to where Potiphar didn't, he, he didn't like have any concerns. He was able to just trust him with everything. Now, the Bible tells us an interesting fact about Joseph. The Bible says that he was very handsome, right? And so you, you got to be pretty handsome for, you, for the Bible to call you out on it. Um, and as this young, handsome man, uh, Potiphar's his wife started to pursue Joseph. And so think about this. The boss's wife is pursuing you. That's what's going on. And she was making advances at him. He was like, no, 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 I'm not going to give in to that. That's wrong. Um, and day after day, she would make advances. And day after day, he would, he would say, no, thank you, and try to you know, get out of the situation. Eventually, she became so frustrated with him that she basically made up a big lie about him, saying that he was trying to like, hurt her and all this. And so Potiphar, gets, he gets angry at Joseph because he, he thinks that he's hurt his wife or tried to, and he throws him in prison. So now Joseph is in prison, right? No trial, no, nothing. He's just thrown in prison. 
He spends his teenage years in slavery. He spends his 20s in prison. And yet the Bible tells us that, again, God was with him and God helped him to prosper in whatever he did. And he was faithful in the prison to the point to where the warden puts him in charge of all the other prisoners. So he becomes kind of the steward of the prison. And this goes on year after year after year. Eventually, the, 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 the king Pharaoh, his cupbearer and his baker, they made Pharaoh angry and, and Pharaoh throws them in prison. So after years of being in prison, now all of a sudden these very two important people show up, the cupbearer and the, uh, the baker, and Joseph is put in charge of them, so he's to take care of them. And after a while, uh, they both have uh, dreams this one night. And, and then God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams. And he tells them what the dreams mean. And, the, 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 you know, what happens is he's like, look, you know, to the cupbearer, your dream means that Pharaoh's going to forgive you and you're going to go back into his good graces. And for the baker, well, your dream means you're going to be put to death. And indeed, that's actually what happened. As the cupbearer was being released from prison, Joseph said to him, hey, remember me, right? I'm stuck here. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. Remember me. And uh, the cupbearer was like, yeah, sure, I'll remember you. But he didn't, right? And so then years go by, years go by. And after many, many years, all of a sudden, Pharaoh one night has a couple of dreams, disturbing dreams. And he calls in you know, his magicians and his wise men and his advisors, and nobody can tell him what these dreams mean. No one can interpret these dreams. And then all of a sudden, you know, the cupbearer like remembers, oh, there was that guy in prison and he interpreted my dream. So, so then the cupbearer says to Pharaoh, he's like, well, I know this guy, Joseph, and he might be able to help. And he tells him the whole story of what happened. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph, you know, they pull him out of the prison. They clean him up. They bring him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. And then Joseph says to Pharaoh, he says, look, you need to understand it's not me who interprets dreams, but God has given me the ability to interpret these dreams. So it's God who's interpreting your dreams, Pharaoh. And then he tells Pharaoh what the dreams mean. Basically, the dreams mean that there's going to be seven years of plenty where there's going to be all this abundance in the land. And then after that, there's going to be a time of famine. There's going to be years of famine to where not just Egypt, but the, the whole world is going to be starving to death. And then Joseph does something really interesting. He says to Pharaoh, he says, you know, my recommendation is that during this time of plenty, you store up food, you know, you store up food so that when there is a time of famine, there'll be enough food for everyone in Egypt. So he kind of gives an interpretation and then gives a proposal. And then Pharaoh responds saying, wow, this is really good. You're very wise. Nobody else has the spirit of God. Nobody else is interpreting these dreams. Nobody else has a plan like this. So Pharaoh's like, Joseph, I want you to be the guy in charge. And he puts him in charge. He's second in command. He becomes governor of Egypt. He's 30 years old. So think about this. He's in his teens He's thrown into slavery in his, during his, all entire, his 20s. He's in prison. And then at 30 years old, he becomes basically the second most powerful man on earth. He is the right hand of Pharaoh himself. 
Then as they move into the time of abundance, Joseph does exactly what he asked Pharaoh uh, or recommended that Pharaoh do. He, he starts to store up the food, the grain. Uh, in every city throughout Egypt, they have a, a storehouse where they fill it full of grain. The Bible says there's so much grain you couldn't count it. It was like the, the sand of the seashores. It was un, you're unable to count bec- the, the grain because it was just in abundance, city after city after city, storehouse after storehouse after storehouse, just filled to the top, all this grain. After seven years of abundance, there comes a time of famine, and then Joseph opens up the storehouses, and there's enough food to start feeding the Egyptians, and they're selling grain. And then as time goes on, the famine spreads to the rest of the world, and then they are able to then even feed the rest of the world. And Joseph helps Pharaoh become incredibly wealthy. His, his power, his influence, his wealth expands and spreads because of Joseph's faithfulness. Now, there comes a point, though, where everybody is starving. People from distant lands are starving. And Jacob, Joseph's dad, he hears about Egypt having grain. And he says, you know what? We, we need food. We're going to starve to death. And so Jacob sends his sons to go to Egypt to buy grain, all right? And he sends, he sends all of them except for Benjamin. Jim, Benjamin is the youngest son. He doesn't send him, but he sends the rest of them. And then the brothers, they come to Egypt. And as they come to Egypt, they stand before the governor, Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph, right? He, he, he looks different. He's dressed in, you know, Egyptian uh, you know, garb. He speaks Egyptian. He looks and acts like an Egyptian because he's grown up in Egypt. And they don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. But as soon as he sees them, he recognizes them. And we're told that he actually speaks harsh to them. And he accuses them of being spies. And then he does sell them some food. And he, he sends them on, on their way. But what he does is he, he puts like some money in one of the sacks and he does like some kind of trickery type stuff where he's testing them. He ends up taking one of the brothers and saying, you're going to stay here. The rest can go. I'll only let you, I'll only release you if they return with all the brothers. I want to, I want to meet this younger brother, Benjamin. And so he ends up keeping one of the brothers with him. The rest of the other brothers go back home to Egypt. After some time, they come back with Benjamin. And then Joseph now is is looking at all the brothers. And Benjamin is near and dear to his heart. They have some time together. And in that time, Joseph kind of tests the brothers again. What he does is he's going to send them on their way. But he has someone put a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And as the brothers leave, the soldiers come in and they're like, somebody stole something. They stole a cup. Whoever has the cup, they're going to go to prison. And they search the bags and it's in Benjamin's bag. They bring the brothers back to Joseph. And and Joseph is basically like, this youngest one now is going to have to stay with me. He's going to be put in prison. The brothers then kind of freak out. And they're like, no, 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 no. You, you can't do this. Like, if, if he stays here, it's going to kill our dad. Like, like, our dad already lost one son. He can't bear to lose another. The brothers are like, we'll do anything. You say, we'll do anything if you'll just let him go. And what happens is, is as, that, that, as that conversation is happening, Joseph's heart 
just completely breaks and he breaks down. And then he reveals himself to the brothers. It's me, it's Joseph. Which, as you can imagine, they're like completely freaked out about. What? Like they would, couldn't comprehend that indeed that, that it was him, but it is. And then Joseph says to him, I want you to go back home and I want you to get our father. And I want you to bring the whole family to Egypt, which they do. They go and they get the whole family. They bring them all to Egypt. So now we have the whole entire family. There's about 70 of them, right? The tribe of Israel in Egypt. And Joseph gives them the best land. Joseph blesses them with everything they need. As time goes on, Jacob gets, gets sick and eventually he dies. And then they bury him. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Okay, so a lot has happened. A lot has happened. We're going to pick up this story in Genesis chapter 50, uh, starting with verse 15. And this is right after, right after Jacob has been buried. This is what we see. Okay, it says this in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Okay, so they're like, Okay, dad is gone. That might mean we're in trouble. I mean, maybe, maybe Joseph has only been kind to us. Maybe he's only been nice to us because dad's been alive. But now that dad is gone, maybe he's now going to, he's going to, you know, he's going to come at us. I mean, you got to think about what's happening at this point in the story. The brothers have ruined Joseph's life. I mean, they, they sold him into slavery. He was, you know... Ended up in prison. Like all these terrible things that have happened throughout his life. Years and years and years and years of suffering was because of them and what they did. And Joseph has all the power in the situation. I mean, if he wants to, he can, he can sell them into, you know, into slavery. If he wants to, he can throw them in prison. If he wants to, he just speaks the word and they'll be put to death. And the brothers are wondering, like... Now the dad is gone. Is he coming for us? What's going to happen? So what do the brothers do? We keep going into verse 16. Uh, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, uh, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And so what we see here is that Jacob's dying wish is that his sons will reconcile. That the, 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 their relationships will be restored. That's what he wants. He just wants his boys to come together and for there to be peace in the family. And so he says to the brothers, he says, look, you need to apologize. You need to talk to Joseph. Right? You, need to, you need to ask him for forgiveness. And indeed, that's what the brothers do. And so they, they tell Joseph, this is what dad wanted. His dying wish was for us to reconcile. And we are so sorry. We're so sorry. Right? Forgive us. Forgive us. How, how does Joseph respond? If you keep going into verse 17... It says, uh, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Right, so, so he's overcome with emotion. He's weeping. Now think about this, okay? Think about this. 
He's 17 years old. They betray him, sell him into slavery. He spends his 20s in, 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 in prison. When he's 30, he becomes governor. There's been seven years of abundance. Now there's moved into a season of famine. Who knows how long it's been? Maybe they're halfway through. So Joseph at this point is probably around 40, maybe 42 years old. It's been 20, 23 years since his brothers betrayed him. So for decades, for decades, he has been carrying this hurt, this heartache, this brokenness. For decades, he's been waiting not knowing if he'll ever see his brothers again, not knowing if they'll, if, they'll, if they'll ever be a way for them to reconcile. And here they come, and they ask for forgiveness. Right? So, of course, he breaks down and he weeps. Right? I mean, imagine if you have been waiting for decades for someone to apologize for something they did to you how you would be overcome with emotion. How, how just emotional that moment would be. That's the moment that he's in. But, but it's not just that. The brothers actually humble themselves before Joseph. Because if you look at verse 18, it says, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So they apologize and then they come before him and they bow down. We're your servants. We belong to you. What's happening? In this moment, it's a fulfillment of the dream he had when he was 17. All right, think about this, okay? Because remember, he has this dream. He tells the brothers, the brothers hate him, betray him, and they want to get rid of him because of this dream. And now the moment has become fulfilled. This dream has come true. And in this moment, we see, we see the context of the dream, right? He says, you're going to bow down to me. And they say, we hate you. But now in the moment as it's happening, they're bowing down to him and they're asking, please don't hate us. And so there's this, 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 this pivotal moment happening right here. What is he going to do? I mean, what he decides to do will, it will shape the future trajectory of the family, the, the, the tribe of Israel. Everything that happens from, from that point forward is hinging on this decision. Is he going to pour out his wrath on them? Is he going to forgive them? What's going to happen? Have you ever been in a situation like this, like have you ever been in a situation where um, you had to make a decision, like, am I going to forgive this person or not? Have you ever been in a situation where someone has caused you great pain and, and you're trying to move forward in it and you've got to decide, like, what you're going to do? You know, a lot of times when we're in one of these moments, we're, we're thinking like, okay, well, what, you know, what do I do in this situation? Like, you know, do I, uh, do I forgive them? Do, do I, you know, hold this against them? Uh, what am I supposed to do? The Bible gives some instructions on how to address relational conflict within the context of the church. 
right? Matthew chapter 18 talks about this, that if someone sins against you uh, in, 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 in the family of God, you go to that person and you talk to them. Hey, you hurt me. You sinned against me. And the hope is that they'll see their sin and they'll be able to acknowledge it and, uh, and, and repent, which means have a change of mind and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And then you can forgive and reconcile and the relationship can be restored. But sometimes when you talk to someone and confront them, they're unwilling to listen. And so the Bible says that in a situation like that, you should bring some people with you. Say, hey, you know what? We, we saw what happened and this was not done. This wasn't right. And really like you, you need to, you know, you need to ask for forgiveness so there can be some reconciliation happen. If the person is willing to receive that, then you can be reconciled. If they're unwilling to receive that, then it kind of elevates up the conflict a little bit to where then you, you can bring in leadership of the church to be able to say, well, look, we, we want to talk through this. We want to try to help you, you know, reconcile. Let's, let's work, work through this. And if the person is willing to receive that, then there can be reconciliation. If they're unwilling to receive that, well, then the relationship is unwilling to be reconciled and there's a fractured, broken relationship. And, and so what we see is that God's heart, God's desire is when there is relational brokenness for there to be confession from the, ones who, the one who has caused the harm, that there would be um, repentance on behalf of the one who has caused the harm, and that there would be the ability to forgive uh, from the one who's been harmed, and then there can be reconciliation between both parties, and uh, that ultimately in the best case scenario, the relationship would be able to not just be reconciled, but also restored and, uh, and, and even better moving forward. That's what God's desire is. That's God's heart. That's what God wants for his people. Now, depending on what happens, sometimes that's possible, sometimes it's not. Right? If you've been in a situation where someone hurts you and that person is unwilling to acknowledge their sin, unwilling to repent, unwilling to reconcile, then there are uh, not a lot of options for you. Uh, you know, it, 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 it takes two people to reconcile. Both parties have to be willing to, to participate. But here's the thing. It only takes one person to forgive. And so someone can do harm to you and not be willing to, 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 to repent and ask for forgiveness, and yet you still have the ability to choose to forgive. That, that, that we can take on a heart of God and say, you know what, I know you, you haven't asked for it, and you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna forgive anyways, right? Like we can have like the, a gracious type of response to someone. Now, that's not the situation that's happening here with Joseph. In, in this moment, what is it? The brothers have come. They've asked for forgiveness. He has to make a decision. Will I forgive? Will I not forgive? And so what would you do in a situation like that? What would you do? Well, what does he do? Let's, let's, let's keep going in the story. Let's see kind of like what he does. Okay, we're looking at verses uh, 19 through 21. It says... Uh, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke 
kindly to them. There are a couple of things that he says that I really want to point out. First, in, in verse 19, he's like, look, don't be afraid. And then he says, uh, for am I God? He's basically saying, look, don't be afraid. I, I'm not God. Right? Now, only God has the right to judge and condemn and seek vengeance and pour out his wrath. Only God has that right. I'm not God. But then, but then notice he also says, don't, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. And not only am I going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of you and your little ones. I'm not holding a grudge against you. I forgive. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be worried. And, and so we see here that his response is one of compassion and kindness. All right, so think about this. I mean, his whole life is destroyed, and yet he is able to look beyond that and forgive. Hey, how, how is he able to do that? Like, like, what does it take for him to be able to be at a place to where he can forgive? Well, I think that we actually see something in his own words that give us insight into what has happened within him to help him be able to forgive. There, there's something that he has, something that he's gained through all of the hardship, through all of the suffering. And that is perspective. Look at, look at verse 20, okay? So let's look closely at verse 20. Because here, here we see the, the perspective that he has. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right? You meant evil, but God meant good. Perspective. You know, suffering causes some people to harden their heart. Right? Some people experience suffering and they become very angry and bitter and resentful and their heart just gets hard. Some people suffer and it's not that their heart becomes hard, but rather their heart becomes soft. Some people, they suffer, and through that experience of suffering, they gain, they gain wisdom and understanding, and they gain knowledge. Which is Joseph. I mean, we see here, right? We see Joseph, his heart isn't hard. That all his years of suffering, they haven't, those years of hardship. I mean, think about this, being in prison. Losing your, your teen, teenage years, being ripped out of your home, losing your teen, teenage years, losing all of your 20s, right? All of this suffering, it doesn't harden him, it softens him. We see he's a man who's, who's in touch with his emotions, right? He, repeatedly throughout the story, there are times when he weeps over what's happening, so he has emotional intelligence. He's also a man who has great wisdom. He's able to, 
discern the moment and recommend like complicated strategic business plans to even bring about the uh, kind of the, 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 the salvation, if you will, of the, the, of the country so that they don't starve to death. He has wisdom beyond his age. Indeed, God takes him through a, through a season of suffering and on the other side of it, he comes out a changed man. A man who's not only soft in his heart, but a man who's strong in his faith. A man who has perspective, right? Perspective. Now, I suspect that it, it probably wasn't always like this for Joseph. I mean, I imagine that when he was in his 20s, when he was in prison, I imagine there was a time when he couldn't necessarily see what God was up to. I imagine that when he was being, you know, uh, he was taken from from his his homeland and he's being traveled, right? Like he's probably in shackles being taken to Egypt. I'm sure that in that time, as he's being forced out of his homeland, he can't imagine what's going on. He doesn't understand what what God is up to. You know, when he's, when, when uh, Potiphar's wife like lies about him and he's like, and he's betrayed, he, he can't like, what is going on? I imagine there's a time in multiple times where he doesn't have the ability to see what God is up to. All he's seen is the suffering that he's experiencing. And, and this is typically what happens, right? We experience hardship, we experience suffering, we go through something like that, and we can't see beyond our suffering. We can't see beyond the circumstances of the hardship that we're having. And in that moment, you're just, we're, we're, what happens? Like in those moments where you're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? And in those moments, what do you do? Well, the only thing you can do, which is wait. And that's what Joseph has been doing all those years. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Waiting for God to show up and God to do something. And indeed, that's what happens. Right? God shows up and delivers him out of prison in a very kind of miraculous way in the sense that God gives him the ability to interpret these dreams of Pharaoh, which end up leading to him as second in command. So he goes from the lowest place to the highest place. And through all of that, after all these years, now Joseph is at a a point to where he he has perspective because he's able to see how God was working through all of the things, how he was working through all of it to bring him to the place that he is today. That's why he can say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's why he can say, you know what, you did evil against me, but God is so good, he took that evil and he turned it around to make good come out of it. Perspective. You know, when you, when you think about it, um, it, it seems to me that like time, history, th- these are things that we can't always understand or discern all that God is up to, right? That, that, we're, that, that sometimes we just don't have the ability to see what's happening. And, and there's kind of a famous illustration that I really think helps us uh, to kind of grasp this. 
this. And it's this, this uh, illustration that's about a tapestry, right? I don't know if you know what a tapestry is, but it's like a piece of cloth that has an image embroidered on it. And uh, with the tapestry, what the person does is, is they are embroidering the image. They're creating this, this beautiful image. So when you're looking at the front of a tapestry, you see something clear. You see an image. You see something of beauty. And you're able to discern this beautiful image as you're looking at the front of it. But, but here's the thing, on the back of the tapestry, it doesn't look like a beautiful image. Rather, it's just all these pieces of string that are drawn, you know, going from one place to the other. Like, it's like kind of naughty and chaotic looking. And I'll give you kind of a, 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 you know, a definitive way to think about it. Here, here actually is a tapestry. This is the front. Now, the photo is not that, the, the greatest photo. But this is a tapestry of someone who embroidered a crown. And on the front, you see it and you go, oh, it's beautiful. It, it's clear. We know exactly what this is. We can, we can see it and very quickly understand the kind of the significance of this image. But on the back it looks a lot different. And on the back, it's like a chaotic, naughty mess. And if you're only looking at the back of the tapestry, you may not be able to actually have the discernment to see what is happening on the front end. And indeed, I think that this is kind of what time is like or history is like in the sense that Oftentimes in our lives, what we see from our perspective is like that we're looking at the back of a tapestry, right? We just see all the chaotic moments and the naughty moments. We, we, we see like, oh, like it looks like everything's out of control and it's like there's no, like no order to it. And why did that happen? And why did that happen? And it just seems all chaotic and we can't make, make heads or tails of some of the things that happen to us. When you're going through a season of hardship and suffering, then de- definitely that's what happens is, is you're just seeing like it's like there are all these strings crossing and you can't figure out what is, why is this happening? God, why are you letting this happen? What's going on here? And it's in those moments that we start to doubt, even maybe start to have despair, where we start to question and, 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 and get confused and, and our heart gets just so tangled up and there's all this temptation to, 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 to really just kind of like turn away from God. And this is why we have to remember like from our vantage point, we're not able to see the front of the tapestry yet. Because if if you were able to step back from your experience and walk around from the back of it to see the front and actually see throughout all of human history, to be able to see through all of your life, all of the moments, everything that has been happening, if you're able to look through all the generations and to see all that has taken place and how God has weaved it all together and brought it all together, and you can see it from the front side, what you would see is that God is creating a a beautiful story of redemption. And we we look at the front of, 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 of the tapestry of history, and we see very clearly this beautiful story of God redeeming, not just humanity, humanity in all creation itself. 
But what happens is we're, we're unable to see that in its fullness. Like we, we, every once in a while we get a little glimpse of it maybe, like a little taste of heaven on earth where we see a little, like we oh, I might think I might have just saw a little glimpse, but we haven't actually seen the fullness yet. Because what we see is behind the scenes all the strings going from one place to another, the naughtiness, the, it, the chaos. I think in Joseph's story for many years, it was like he was looking behind the tapestry and then there came a point where he started to get a little bit of a glimpse of the front of the tapestry and that's why he was able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is true not just for him, it's true for all of us. Hear me, friend. There will come a day when you will have the perspective of being able to see what God is really doing. All the, all the suffering, all the hardship, all the, what, what seems like chaos, there will come a point when you will be able to see how God was working in and through everything to bring about good for those who love him. That day will come, if you are a believer, that day will happen. You will see one day in full, but now you see in part. And so a, a story like Joseph's is so helpful because it gives us, it gives us perspective. Right? Here, here's the heart of the matter, friends. Right? Waiting can bring perspective. Joseph had to wait Decades before he was able to receive that kind of perspective. The waiting, it, it can bring about perspective if we allow it. Now notice, I, di I didn't say waiting does bring perspective, or uh, as in definitively. And the reason why I didn't, I didn't say that is because I think you can wait, and if you're unwilling to even look for what God is up to, not have perspective because your eyes are closed your heart is shut off but in the waiting there's also an opportunity for your eyes to be open for your heart to be open for you to say yeah I'm in a season of waiting to see what God is going to do but I'm I've got the perspective to trust him because he's good. Waiting is a process, and it's, it's not just a process, it's formative. In the waiting, we can be transformed if we're willing to participate with God in it. We can grow in patience, we can grow in self-control, we can grow in godly character. We can grow in so many different ways. We can grow in dependency, we can grow in trust, we can grow in all these different ways. And so Advent is a season that teaches us the value of waiting. Because here's what Advent is about. The whole entire season is about waiting for Jesus to return. That's what it's about. We're waiting for the return of Christ. And as we wait, we have this opportunity to have perspective 
The tomb is empty. Jesus is on the throne. He will return. He will make right all that has gone wrong. It's not yet happened, but I have perspective because I believe it's going to happen because God has promised it so. And so in the waiting, we can, we can have a moment of, of, of trusting God and having this perspective that no matter what takes place, no matter what evil is done, God can work in and through all things to bring about good. And that's perspective. Here's one of the things I love about the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph, is, Joseph is, he's, he's what they would call a, a, a type of Christ. That doesn't mean he is Christ. It means that he's someone who is a foreshadowing, who points forward to Christ. And, and what I love about the story of Joseph is, you know, he's someone that God works in and in through to bring about salvation for the people. They don't starve to death. But he himself is waiting and longing. He's waiting and longing for God to deliver him out of prison. He's waiting and longing for God to bring about some form of healing with him and his family. He's waiting and longing for God to save his people. Like he himself is someone who waits and longs and hopes and then experiences God's power and his presence and his provision. And there's all these similarities between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. Because ultimately, what was Joseph waiting for? He was waiting for Christ. Ultimately, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ to return. And there are all these similarities in the, in the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. Joseph was loved by his father. Jesus, the only begotten son of God, the son of God, perfectly loved by his father. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and rejected, right? Jesus was betrayed by a friend and betrayed and rejected by the religious leaders. Right? Joseph was sold into slavery. Now, Jesus wasn't sold into slavery, but he did willingly choose to leave heaven and to come to earth, making himself take on the form of a servant to serve us. Right? Joseph, even though he had done nothing wrong, was, you know, basically arrested and without a fair trial, thrown in prison. Jesus, he was arrested and he didn't get a fair trial. And he was thrown before Pilate. They beat him, they mocked him, they scourged him. And then ultimately they crucified him and nailed him to a cross. Right? Joseph... He suffered years of hardship in prison. And it was though prison was like a form of death. Jesus suffered on the cross, dying in our place for our sin to the point of death, where he was thrown into the grave. But God delivered Joseph from prison and then exalted him so that he was at the right hand of Pharaoh. God delivered Jesus from the grave and he resurrected and then he ascended into the heavens. He was exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father to reign and rule over all things. There are all these similarities between their stories. But, but if you look at the story of Joseph, what's interesting is kind of the climax, the pivotal moment of Joseph really does revolve around this 
asking for forgiveness, giving forgiveness, this reconciliation that happens between him and his brothers. Because if you think about like the story that's happening with the family throughout the book of Genesis, what the, what the, the way the story goes, if you read throughout the whole, the whole book of Genesis, what you'll see is that this is a very broken family. This is a family that has a lot of issues. Right? Abraham is, is like, you know, he's married to Sarah and they've got all kinds of brokenness. And then he ends up like hooking up with this other lady, Hagar, and that creates all kinds of brokenness. And then there's like brokenness between Sarah and Hagar. And then Hagar has a son, uh, Ishmael, and, and Sarah has a son, Isaac. And then there's all this brokenness between Isaac and Ishmael. And then, um, and then Isaac has two sons, uh, Esau and Jacob. But then there's all this animosity and brokenness between Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob has a bunch of sons. And then there's all this brokenness and animosity between Joseph and all these sons. And so there's four generations of brokenness happening in this family from one generation to the next to the next. Brokenness, hurt, pain, sorrow, suffering. And yet, because one man suffers and through his suffering, God brings about good, ultimately the family is able to be brought together and there's reconciliation that's able to happen. Which paves the way for this little tribe of Israel, 70 people, to grow to become a nation. Right? And, and, and in a similar but more profound way, Jesus suffers. He suffers and dies and defeats the grave so that we can be reconciled to God, but also receive a ministry of reconciliation so that we can be reconciled to others. And so there's this beautiful story of redemption that God is weaving through Genesis and through the story of Joseph, but it's also the story we find ourselves in. It's our story, it's your story. And so as we move into this Advent season, what I want to do is I want to ask you, I want to invite you to have perspective. Perspective that God is weaving together a beautiful story of redemption in your life, but also the kind of perspective to understand that you get to participate in this story of redemption. That, that you have a ministry of reconciliation in the sense that you can be someone who seeks out broken relationships to bring about healing in those broken relationships. Specifically, maybe there's someone in your life where you're saying this relationship isn't what it ought to be. Maybe there's a situation that's happened and let Advent become a season for you to have an expectation, an anticipation that God's going to show up in that relationship, that God's going to bring an opportunity for there to be some kind of healing. Right? Maybe it's not possible for you to be reconciled to the person. Maybe healing means you forgive and God does a healing work in your, in your heart. Or maybe it is possible to be reconciled and there's a way for God to, to work so that there can be forgiveness and a restoring of the relationship to come together. What I'm simply asking is, would you consider, would you consider that God is so good, he can take the pain of your past and make something beautiful, like a beautiful tapestry come out of it? 
And if so, what would it look like for you to participate in that? Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you for the story of Joseph, and we thank you that we see in a very practical way how you enter into suffering to bring about good. How you can enter into the most difficult, hard, challenging times and work in miraculous ways so that we can experience healing, restoration, we can experience redemption in all these various forms. And I do pray and I ask God, would you do a work of redemption in our lives? Would, would, you, would you do a work of healing for those who right now are, are suffering and there's hurt and pain and relational strife? Would you do a work of healing? God, for, for those who maybe have been holding on to bitterness and resentment, would you release them from those things so that they could let go of them and forgive? God, if there's been relationships that have been fractured and broken, may, may this season be a season for those relationships to be reconnected and for you know, confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to happen. And God, we take a moment to just acknowledge that we can't see all that you're up to. We don't see the, we don't see the front of the tapestry. We just see behind. And, and oftentimes it does, look, it does look like a mess to us. I pray, give us perspective so that in the mess we're able to understand that you are doing a work and the story is not yet over. And it won't be until the return of Christ the redemption of all things, that we are able to see all that you have been up to, God. Until that day happens, we pray, help us to be a hopeful people, help us to be a prayerful people, help us to be a dependent people, that we would trust you, God, and depend on you, and look to you. We pray this all in Christ's good name. Amen. Well, congrats, you made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.